0: A question just to think about, not one you have to respond to, but a question to think about is when is the last time you had that in-over-your-head feeling, that time where you felt like, "I, I I might drown, I might go down. I remember distinctly, vividly, one of those moments in my life, and it was about 20 years ago at the end of this month, because 20 years ago at the end of this month, our first child, Megan, was born. And I remember that precious child entering the world, surrounded by all kinds of technicians, uh, technical equipment, in a wonderful hospital environment. And as soon as she was born, there was a small army of people that bathed her and and took care of her and wrapped her up. So I just all I had to do was cut an umbilical cord, which overwhelmed me at the time. But uh, I didn't have a lot to do. But but, uh, a couple days after that, a terrifying thing happened yeah, they sent her home. I thought to myself, are they out of their minds? I've never, I, I couldn't even take care of a hamster as a kid. We set it free in the backyard. I couldn't, I mean, the idea that this little child that would be wholly dependent, I was just glad Karen was a good caretaker because I'm like, I'm going to be not helpful at all. And uh, being a married man, she made me into a helpful person. But if you've ever had uh, that in-over-your-head fear, it may have been uh, the first child, it may be the grandchild, although that probably is not as fearful, right? The only thing you fear with a grandchild is getting in trouble with the child's parents, right? You sugar them up, you let them play technology a little longer than they should, right? That's at least some of the confessions I've heard from some grandparents, okay? But, um, But most of us at some point or another have bumped into some fear, something that, That struck some chord in our lives and we felt a little overwhelmed by it. And if you've ever felt that, you're in good company because there's a guy in the Bible, a historical man in the Bible known as Nebuchadnezzar, and he had a moment of chilling fear in his life. Now, we're not used to looking at the bad guys in the Bible with any sort of good light, and Nebuchadnezzar isn't such a good guy And so normally when we say his name, there's a little sort of like, "Mm." so the idea that Nebuchadnezzar would have a little fear in his life, actually most of us would enjoy that a bit, right? Because he's not a hero in the Bible. But Nebuchadnezzar uh, experienced a little fear, a little kind of historical context. I always think it's good to know the historical context when we dive into the biblical text. We know roughly right around when Nebuchadnezzar was born. We know roughly when Nebuchadnezzar first showed up at Jerusalem and uh, made Jerusalem or Judah a vassal state of his growing empire. We even know when he came back and decimated. He visited Jerusalem a few times, and it wasn't until a later time where he tore the walls down and left it a pile of ashes. But when we bump into Nebuchadnezzar in this story, he's, mm, he's maybe 30. He's young. In fact, by 29, he, uh, he the prince, ends up the emperor because his dad, who is building the Babylonian Empire, keels over and Nebuchadnezzar inherits the throne. But he's a prince who inherited the throne. And the way that you establish power is through uh, not just fine leadership and divine right monarchy, but you establish your leadership by making sure everybody followed you. But can you imagine the situation Nebuchadnezzar at 30 years of age must have found himself in, surrounded by his dad's advisors, many of whom had thought, why is this punk kid leading the empire now? Any of you, by the way, uh, don't show your hands, but any of you ever work for a company where uh, it went from one generation to the other, and the founding generation, they were good, but the next generation, you're like, they're going to wreck this thing. Some of you know from firsthand experience what that is like. And Nebuchadnezzar, he was the punk kid that was ascending the throne. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the context of it. I just think that's a worthy endeavor for us to get an idea of what's taking place. So when we bump into the text, it makes a little more sense. So here we are, Daniel 2, verse the first verse. It says this, one night during the second year of his reign. See, that's how we know about how old he is. He becomes king at about 29. So he's 30, 31. So one night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. You ever have a disturbing dream and you wake up and you're like, oh, thank, thank God that was just a dream. I used to have a reoccurring dream when I first became a pastor that I would be on the platform. Uh, I would be, no, not naked. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate, I appreciate knowing that you think of me now that way. That's really awkward. Dan, could you leave? Uh No, I used to have a dream that I was laying in bed and I flipped over. And when I flipped over, there was the entire church. And somehow my bed had been transported to the platform. And I'm laying in bed looking out at the congregation. And they're looking at me confused. Why is that guy laying in bed? And in my dream, I somehow made that a sermon illustration. I was impressed with my own off-the-cuff remarks in my dream. But it still was a terrifying dream. And I had it reoccurring. So I never, by the way opened a sermon laying in bed, and I never will. I'll leave that to Ed Young Jr. You can Google that later. Um, But in the ancient world, this is why this matters. He has a disturbing dream, and in the ancient world, people thought that it was in that dream place that the spirits or the gods or the messengers of the gods spoke to you. So in the dream... There was this idea that God was, or the gods were speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he wakes up, and it bothers him tremendously. So he does what a king will do. He called his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I have a, I've had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. And then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king. Tell us the dream. Wonderful. You had a dream. It bothers you. You just tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. And then the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious. I'm serious. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. Some of you have had some tough bosses, but I bet none of them. Were that of. And he says, but if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I'll give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. And what he's doing here is he's shaking him down. He's had a disturbing dream, he's feeling insecure. I'm just, this part's a little speculative, but I think that the historical context merits this speculation he's feeling like any new leader is going to feel when he is thrust into a significantly more powerful and influential role than he's ever been in before. He has a disturbing dream and he suddenly thinks everyone's out to get me. I'm on this Island all by myself. And the, the spirits are trying to tell me, watch your back. That's, I think that's how, that's how he's, arranging all of his thoughts in his head. It makes sense why then he says what he says to these leaders. Again, I'm speculating a little bit, but I believe that the context gives us that sort of freedom. You see the early magicians, the astrologers, those guys, they were like modern-day, pardon the comparison, psychoanalysts. They would say, "You you give me your thoughts and then I will go back to my books" And I'll look through, and you, you had a vision of an eagle, and you had a vision of a serpent, and you had a vision. And, and they would hit the books, and they would go, okay, uh, king, um, all those elements, here's the symbols. It's this and this and this. And so this is probably what this means. That, that was their pseudoscience behind their religion. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he knows that they have to have information to work with in order for them to interpret. And he is not going to play this game and says, the king was furious when he heard this. And he ordered all the wise men of Babylon be executed. Furious is an understatement, I think. (laughs) Again, uh, you think of your lines of work that you could be in. I'm like, I would rather be the guy that drives the donkey cart in Nebuchadnezzar's empire. It didn't pay to be near that guy. And because the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. And uh, so we back up a little bit. We've been looking at Nebuchadnezzar. This is a couple years into Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Daniel's been in Babylon now for about a couple of years. Because Nebuchadnezzar ascends to the throne. We just know this from the historical record. Nebuchadnezzar, after becoming the king, comes down to Judea, makes Jerusalem a vassal state, and carts away the best and the brightest, which includes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they're two years now into Babylon. They're Daniel and his friends, 17, 18 years of age, maybe. They're young guys. They've been, uh, they're graduates of empire school. They've been learning the language. They're um, they've already uh, they've already kind of gone through one little test, which was the food test where Daniel and his friends wouldn't eat the food. And so they're they're growing in their faith, but they're young guys and they're in a community full of luxury, but it's not home. They can still remember the temple. It still stands back in Jerusalem. It hasn't been destroyed yet. They still probably in their heart think maybe there's some way we could get reassigned and get back home. And that's when a knock at the door and the door swings open. It says when Ariak, the commander of the King's guard came, uh, then when the uh, commander of the King's guard came to kill them, and, you know, I don't know if you caught that, but ariac he shows up sword in hand. It says when ariac the commander of the King's guard came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation. I love this with wisdom and discretion. Now, I have been reared on action movies so when a bad guy shows up the door like with a drawn sword gun whatever in my action movies he just gets mowed down by the good guy he doesn't get handled with wisdom and discretion right there's not this moment in an action movie where a guy says I sense you're troubled um (laughs) my friend this is not the way uh if you've seen The Equalizer, Denzel Washington does not spend much time in such dialogue. Uh, don't think the movie would have done so well with that dialogue. But here it is. He handles him with wisdom and discretion. He asks, Ariok, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? And so Ariok told him what happened. And Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Daniel's not in the circle. He's young. He's probably He's probably an intern at this point. He's not you know, a high ranking official yet. So he somehow is able to get to the king and says, wait, just give us time and we'll sort this out. Then get this. Then Daniel went home. He told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, what had happened. And he, he urged them. He urged them to ask the God of heaven, to show them his mercy by telling them the secret. So they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. And what I want us to do is, uh, if you like taking notes, um, I, I grew up Baptist, so everything's in threes for me. So, uh, so I, there's, a, there's a few different bullet points that might be helpful if you're taking notes. And uh, the heading for this is, how do you experience peace under that kind of pressure? We're, we're all under some stress or pressure in life. And so how do you experience genuine peace in that period of time? And so the first bullet point, again, if you're taking notes, is this, that stressful situations. Stressful situations provide an opportunity to demonstrate our metal. Stressful situations give us an opportunity to demonstrate what we're made of, really who we are at our very core being. And it's interesting what Daniel doesn't do is guy shows up with sword in hand. He doesn't hit his knees, cry, beg, whine. He, or he doesn't just stoically give up, like do what you must do. No, he does four things when faced with this challenge, he seeks clarity. He goes, What happened? He asks a question. So he seeks clarity. He asks for time. Hey, give give us a little time. He goes to the king and says, Give me a little bit of time here. He shares the situation with his group of friends. He goes home and he urges, he urges his friends to pray. And then the fourth thing is he takes it to God in prayer. And you think about that, it's just tucked into this little narrative right here, and it's easy to miss, but that pattern is right here, and that's a good pattern for us, too, is if you're experiencing some stressful situation, I think that's one of the important things of a group like this, right? I mean, at the very beginning, we share a prayer request. Something stressful has happened in my life. There's an illness. There's a friend I'm very concerned about, and so you tell the group, and you ask the group to pray. That's two of the four things that Daniel does. He seeks clarity, he asks for time, he goes to his group, and he asks for prayer. That worked for him a few thousand years ago. That works for us today. It says this in verse 19, that night, so he goes through all this, that night the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. He said, and this is like a, it's almost a psalm, but it's a prayer sing-songy kind of thing. He says this, Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and he sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. For you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. And if, if you see what Daniel tells us here, he's instructing us. There's a reason this is recorded for us to this very day. It's worthy of our time, our attention for us to sort of marinate on these words. But he is extolling God, not just for the virtues that God has, but for the way in which God has interacted with people and the world. He's praising God for what God has done. He says this, he says, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. That's an attribute. But he controls the course of world events and removes kings and sets up other kings. And so what he's saying is, is God, you're, you're sovereign. You are the king. You are in charge of it all. And there's, this, um, there's a theological term for it when thinking about the attribute of God that, that he is overarching sovereign of everything. And that is the term transcendent, that he transcends, that he, he is above all of it. He doesn't exist within it, but he oversees all of it. And transcendent is a, it's a quality of God that speaks of his independence of the material world. We're stuck within the material world, but God is transcendent over it because he's created the material world. And some of us, we have this picture of God that way, that he is very large and very vast, and we have no problem of of imagining him well beyond, you know, the solar system or existing outside the solar system. God is very big and he is very large, but that's not where Daniel leaves it. Because if you just leave that image of God, you just get a lopsided idea of who God is. Daniel doesn't leave it there. Daniel says this, I thank and praise you, God, of my ancestors, so the sovereign, transcendent God, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you, and you revealed to us what the king demanded. And so Daniel's saying, while you oversee all of it, you've spoken into my very existence, my life. You have told me some stuff. And what this attribute of God. This concept of God is his imminence. That means he's very close. That means he's uh, very aware of the intricate detail. And uh, throughout the history of Christianity, people have um, erred on either side of these equations. Daniel gives us this beautiful bridge between the two. There was a, a theological movement that actually still exists. We just don't call it this anymore. It was called deism. And that means that God was transcendent. He was the organizer, but he's way far removed. He's, he is far, far away. He set it all up, and he doesn't get in the everyday nitty-gritty grind of your life. If you're sick, good luck. If, uh, if you're having a hard time finding jobs, network, get a nice LinkedIn profile. God's busy. He is out there. He's creating a new solar system as we're talking. He's forgotten about us. He is transcendent. And there is a group of people, there's still people, they don't call them deists anymore, but there's still people that will talk about God in such terms. Every now and then I've had a friend who's like, hey, put in a good word with the uh, big guy for me, would you? And, and I, I usually respond with some snarky, like, big guy's willing to talk to you anytime, you know? But, but what he's saying is, you know, God's way out there and you're probably one of his like, temple priests, so just go ahead and do a, you know your thing. Because God's way out there. But there's a there is that there's that theological point of view, but then there's the other one, which is God is so close, He's my buddy. We fist bump. He <laughs> thinks it's cute. When I do little sins, he thinks it's kind of cute. He's more he's more Santa uh, than, you know, like it takes an awful lot to get coal in the stocking, you know. If he was here, I, I've heard pastors say, you know, if God, if Jesus was alive today, he'd be down at the bar. There are bars in Jesus' day. He didn't go to the bar. I mean, I'm not saying he wouldn't go to the bar. I'm just saying, why would you go to that extreme? Why would you think... I think he would go where people are, and then he would call people to follow him, and then if they decided not to follow him, then he would go look for other people who would be willing to follow him. But he wouldn't be like some desperate boyfriend who just can crying, can't, can't get enough of you. I mean, like, he's... We sometimes make... We sometimes get an idea that we're like God's pet project and he has nothing better to do than wait on me and all my little idiosyncrasies. Now that's, that's taking imminence way too far. That's, that's losing the transcendence of God in the equation. And this is what's so good when you like, look at the scriptures. The scriptures don't let us err in those kind of ways. We can err in those kind of ways with a nice poem or a good quote, but we can't err in those kind of ways when we look at the whole of Scripture. And when Daniel paints a picture of God, he says, God, you're magnificent, you're transcendent, you're above all of it, King's answer to you, and when I pray to you, you talk to me. And Daniel never, ever loses the tension between those two things. So God is very close. He is interested in the idiosyncrasies of your life, but he's not your buddy ever. He is always God, and so he's always sovereign. He loves you very much at a, at a personal human level, and then he also has a big organizing plan for the whole world, and that's a that itself is just worthy of meditating on this week. I, I wish I could talk more about that, but uh, I won't hit the rest of my outline, and that would be a sin. Uh, at least from my Baptist roots, it would be a sin, uh, but but suffice it to say in that is it, maybe you make a note of that and just say, you know, do some time looking in the scriptures about how God is sovereign and big and grand and how he is close and he is near at hand. It's a beautiful, that's why that, by the way, that's why Christians have embraced God. Like when they get that, that is one of the unique pieces that, that the Christian religion offers that other religions do not offer. This is a very unique aspect of Christianity. When you study world religions or ancient religions, God usually was either way far away or he was down partying with people. And here's God. He is near and he is big. Well, so that's, uh, you know, point number one is, is when we're going through uh, difficult times, it, gets, it gives us a chance to display what we're made of. But number two is when we're going through difficult times, don't focus on the chaos. Focus on God don't focus on the chaos, focus on God. Chaos is always around us. I don't know if you feel that. Um, It depends on the day whether I'm courageous enough to check the news, you know, and every now and then I'm like, oh, that was a big mistake. I shouldn't have checked that. You know, there's chaos always, always, always. Um, And yet if we focus on the chaos, we'll be alarmed, but if we focus on God, we'll find peace. It says this, then Daniel went to see Arioch, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel said, don't kill the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will tell him what the meaning of this dream is. Which by the way, if you're a strategist, Daniel just did something very dumb. Good strategy for Daniel. He had a beautiful opportunity right here. Is He could have moved up the ladder very quickly because he could have just waited a day, let Ariok kill all the wise men so that there aren't competition in the ranks. And then he could have gone, oh, 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 now you got the knife pointed at me. I know what the dream is. Take me to the king. But he doesn't do that. He says, don't kill the wise men. And so uh, he goes to the king, and Daniel replied, There, uh, he says this to Nebuchadnezzar. Again, this is not good strategy. He says, There is no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. Now, this would be a great time for Daniel to go, accept yours truly. I have a gift, and you should probably make me prime minister and give me that neat chariot, a Mercedes G-Wagon chariot. That would be awesome. He says, but no, no, Daniel never is tempted with that stuff. That doesn't mean anything to him. He says, uh, there's no one that can do this, but there is a God in heaven who reveals the secrets and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now, I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. And, and Daniel does something quite remarkable there. He, he is a reflector of God's glory. He focuses on God in the middle of the chaos. He doesn't focus on his talents, his skill set, even what was just revealed to him, but he focuses on God. And that leads us to the third observation here is that God gives us unique abilities. God gives each one of us who follow him unique abilities so we can serve him and we can serve others. Each one of us has a set of skills, abilities. Scripture oftentimes calls them spiritual gifts. But even outside the realm of spiritual gifts, we also have Just some skills and some talents that are designed to serve other people. And this is what Daniel shares. Daniel uh, shares his gift. He says, verse 29, while your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it is not because I'm wiser than anyone else. Just be clear about that. Uh, I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart? I'm only conveying a message that God delivered to you and then explained to me to clarify for you. And it's, it's a little side here is that when Daniel does this, it's, it's sort of like the, um, you know, the, the early ancient history uh, like touchdown pass where the guy points up. You know, there's a moment where Daniel goes, hey, I just want to be clear before I give you the message. This is all God. I want to reflect God. I want to give God glory. And sometimes people, when sincere people of faith do this, they win an award and they go, first and foremost, I want to thank my Savior, Jesus Christ. Christians are usually on the other side of the TV cheering, right? But there's other people like, oh, please, God must be so vain that he has to get all kinds of credit for this stuff. I've heard people say that before. And it's important for us to give God credit, not because God's vain, but because we're vain. The reality is, is all too often our humanness says, that is true. You have honored me with an award that I I deserved a long time ago. It's about time you recognize my talents. Thank you very much. This will go on my talent trophy shelf, where there's room for more, by the way. We're vain people. That is who we are as people. But when we give God credit, when we give him glory, we're actually serving ourselves. You ever thought about it that way? We're actually, we're actually doing something really healthy and strong for ourselves. When we go, if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't be able to do this. Again, not for God, but for us. God already knows he's the one who did it. So when we say it, we are like, God's like, no kidding. I know, I did it. <laughs> I'm glad you recognize that. And so Daniel says, a couple, couple key ideas here. He says, in your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue is made of fine gold and its chest and arms were silver and its belly and thighs were bronze and its legs were iron and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. Anyone who's ever built anything before realizes this is not a very strong statue, at least not at the feet. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue is crushed into tiny pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down, it became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, this is about the future. And then he goes on. I'm not going to read it. You can read it. But he goes on and he says, you know, you're the gold head and the coming kingdoms this is gonna happen, and as soon as Nebuchadnezzar was like, "I'm the gold head, I'm gonna be fine, kingdom's good, I'm gonna be able to rule," he tuned right out. I don't think he heard another. I think at that point Daniel was like, "Wow, wow, 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 wow," because Nebuchadnezzar was like, "Oh, I was worried that I'd be knocked off the throne. I'm not knocked off the throne. Someone else will be knocked off the throne, like one of my grandkids. Don't care about them. I'm good." And and, and biblical scholars have gotten real curious about all the kingdoms, whether are the kingdoms, and they've ascribed different kingdoms. And that, to be honest, is just a huge distraction because what we ought to put our focus on isn't the statue, but is on the rock. The rock is worthy of our attention. It says that uh, Daniel says, During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. This is a little later in the text. He'll, he'll, this is verse 44 God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all those kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, its meaning is certain. You know who the rock is? It's Jesus. They, There's a rock. It's cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. No one did it. It comes down. It dashes all these kingdoms. And then it sets up a kingdom. And uh, one of the most fascinating parts of the book of Daniel is that Daniel is teaching us how to resist. The whole book of Daniel is showing us how to live God-honoring lives of, of actually godly resistance in a culture that doesn't respect godliness whatsoever. Daniel... His whole story occurs within the empires of uh, Babylonia, the Medes, the Persians. It's not a great time to be a a sincere follower of God in those kingdoms. And yet, in that period of time, Daniel is showing it is possible. It's possible to live a life that's honoring to God, even though the culture isn't so God-honoring. And what Daniel tells us right away in the book is a kingdom is going to be formed a kingdom. Incidentally, we're part of that. Those who, who are genuine followers of Christ, we might have citizenship in the United States of America, but our true citizenship is eternal and it, it transcends even our citizenship here. And as great as the citizenship here is, well, it's not that great compared to the citizenship that we get to be part of through Jesus Christ. But uh, that kingdom lasts forever. And so um, when the kingdoms collide and you're in a kingdom that isn't so God honoring, you can always pull out your passport to the kingdom you really belong to. And so what Daniel shows us is that resistance isn't combativeness, mean spirited, and angry shaking your fist there'd be plenty of opportunity for Daniel to go Nebuchadnezzar you are such a loser I can't believe but Daniel doesn't do that a little later in the book of Daniel uh, there's uh, there's uh, Daniel comes into contact with part of Jeremiah it's actually Jeremiah 29 which gets read at weddings it's so cute when it gets read at weddings you know I know the plans I have for you Lord says the Lord plans to prosper you not to harm you you know It's beautiful that it's read at a, a wedding because it's a letter Jeremiah writes to people in captivity. So <laughs> there is a little irony. <laughs> now you know it. It's right there. It's Jeremiah 29. It's a great verse. Some of you know that verse. You're like, it's a beautiful verse. You know what that verse was written to? It was written to people who were citizens of a country that wasn't all too friendly to their value system. And Jeremiah, through God, through God through Jeremiah says go buy houses um, get jobs prosper the city you're part of now give your kids into marriage with other people of faith and have a life and have a life that's honoring to God because God says I know the plans I've got they're good plans it's going to be, you're going to be part of a kingdom that transcends. It, to me, one of the most exciting parts of being a Christian is knowing how subversive it really is, that in parts of the world, like in Iran right now, Christianity is growing, and it just drives the government there crazy. And I love it. It's more subversive than the CIA could ever be. And China, they the more that they're they they they're back persecuting Christianity. They For a while, there was like, they let off, now they're back. They're, destroying churches and stuff actually that actually works better I'm kind of like I don't want that for my brothers and sisters in Christ I don't want that for me but at the same time I I just want to pull some of these leaders aside the Ayatollah or the the head of China and go you know what man if you want this thing to, to be destroyed give it lots of privilege and freedom give them everything their hearts desire they'll become sexualized and materialistic and they won't be interested in you and in, in God anymore you know but no no if you keep persecuting it it'll grow like crazy so keep it up and that's the reality and so Daniel shows us that in the chaos in the storm when the guy shows up at your door with a sword that there is a way of honoring God in all of that that will lead to life and it's a good life let's pray Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to just open up a a book like Daniel. It lies there hidden in the Old Testament. For many of us, uh, we don't really read it much. For many of us, we haven't peered into it since we were kids in a Sunday school class. And yet there it is. And it gives us some inspiration and some instruction. Tells us how to live in challenging times. Lord, we do live in challenging times, and in your word, you tell us to to pray for those who are in leadership above us, and so we do. We take a moment right now, and we pray for those leaders. There are many people in varying leadership capacities in state, local, and federal government that, that we may or may not like, but regardless of how much we personally like them, Lord, we know that you instruct us to pray for them. And so, God, we do just that. We pray for wisdom and discernment for those you placed in authority. And as we come upon an election, Lord, we just pray your will be done. And we ask that you would work through a system and that you would redeem it through the power of Jesus. Lord, we are thankful that, first and foremost, we are not citizens of this great country, as great as it is, but we are citizens, first and foremost, of a country that has no end. And that we hold citizenship in something eternal. And we find great peace in that. And we say thank you for that. And we are entered into that kingdom through the glorious work of Jesus in whose name we pray. And everyone said, amen.